Welcome to ASD Engage, a podcast for families of children who are currently waiting for an autism spectrum disorder or ASD assessment. I'm Dr. Heidi Kiefer, a clinical child and adolescent psychologist. I'm Maureen Mosley, a psychometrist. And I'm Sean Brumby, also a psychometrist. We work on teams that assess children for ASD at Holland Bloorview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital. Each episode, we will present a topic that reflects concerns brought forward by families we work with. You'll hear information regarding the assessment process and insights and information from a variety of specialists. And more importantly, we'll talk directly to families who share some of their personal stories with us in an effort to help guide you through the assessment process. Throughout our previous episodes, we focused on exploring what assessment and diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder can be like, as well as topics that are particularly relevant in the development of children and youth with ASD. Beyond the information and tips covered in those episodes, parents and families may still wonder, what's next? Frequently, the more that's learned, the more questions that arise about such things as funding, intervention, support, and resources. To help families with answers and promote the agency needed to take the next steps, Holland Bloorview offers social work services. We're joined in this episode by Jessica Reed and Robin Hermelin, two of the amazing social workers who help parents navigate the post-diagnosis world. We'll find out what they do, common issues that factor into the sessions with parents and families, and what they suggest to help prepare for a social work appointment. So welcome, Jessica and Robin. We're thrilled to have you join us today. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. So we're going to start off um, the way that we usually do by asking our guests what their role is at Holland Broadview and how you got involved in working specifically with the ASD population. So if we could start with you, Jess. Um, perfect. So my name is Jessica Reed, and I'm a social worker at Holland Broadview. And I have been at Holland Bloorview for nine years now. Um, I started back in 2009, um, actually as a Master's of Social Work student, doing a placement joint, jointly with the Holland Bloorview and Geneva Centre for Autism. Um, and I started back in our satellite program, so look, working in the ASD diagnostic clinics located in the community. Um, now I'm currently working um, in our main hospital programming. And how about you, Robin? Hi, yeah, so I, I found my way into working in the field of autism about 13 years ago. So I was still fairly new in my career as a social worker, and I knew that I wanted to work with um, children and families, but hadn't really kind of specialized in any one area. And, and I started working at an agency in Toronto that supports um, individuals on the autism spectrum and their families. And I, I quickly found as I was learning, um, I just became very curious and interested in, in autism spectrum disorders um, and working with the families. And I also found quite quickly that the, the staff I was working with, my colleagues were you know, just as exceptional as the, the children and the families that we supported. And there was just such dedication and passion. Um, I continue to find that here in my work at Holland Blue Review. And I knew I just found a place that I wanted to stay. Oh, very nice. Excellent. Um, 
Jess, you had mentioned earlier um, when you started working at Holland Bloorview, you were actually hired as an intake coordinator, right, in one of the satellite locations. Can you tell us a little bit about what that entailed and then how that's helped you in your current job today? Absolutely. So when I first started, um, social workers were not um, working in this program in our diagnostic clinics. And so as an intake coordinator, I was responsible for um, connecting with families um, prior to their uh, assessment to gather some information about their child, about their strengths, their interests, and sort of the areas of need. And then I was also tasked with meeting with families subsequently after their diagnosis to help coordinate next steps and follow up. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of led to um, a role being created for social workers about approximately uh, four months after I had started. Mm -hmm. So you're the OG of social work at Holland Blair. I, I, <laughs> I guess so. One of them. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. it was definitely a need. And I would say that the role was very similar. Um, to what we do now. Mm -hmm. um, however, we don't do so much the intake piece prior to the assessments. We now have um, centralized scheduling and intake and so that's really helped with sort of allowing us to focus mainly on the support needs of families after an assessment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think you'd also mentioned that in that role you also got to sit through some of the feedbacks that the parents were getting. Yeah, absolutely. So um, after the assessment was completed, the clinician involved, whether that be the psychologist or the developmental pediatrician, um, would provide a feedback uh, appointment with the families where they would go over the results of the assessment. And so my job at that time was sitting in on those feedback sessions to be able to connect and support the families after the diagnosis and really just help them understand sort of what comes next and then schedule time to meet with them individually afterwards. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so that for sure had to have added value for you working in your capacity now to really understand what parents were experiencing and that feedback. Absolutely, I think it was really eye-opening to see sort of the range of emotions that a family member might go through when they're hearing the words autism spectrum disorder and really just trying to understand what that means for them, what that means for their future. And I think that's really helped me now in the work that I do to really recognize that it is even a spectrum of emotions and just support needs and that some families are more ready for a diagnosis than others and um, that there's no wrong answer when it comes to sort of that process and how fast it goes for one family or another. And so I think that's really allowed me as a social worker to be more cognizant and aware mm -hmm. that I need to meet families where they're at and sort of when they're prepared and ready. Okay, and we'll talk a little bit more about that a little bit further on. Um, one of the things that um, I also wanted to talk about is you see families after the assessment process has been completed and their child or their adolescent has received a diagnosis of ASD. Can you give us a sense of what the purpose is when you meet with parents for a social work appointment? Robin? Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's a, it's a good question, and it's one that you know, families are also curious about mm -hmm. and sometimes confused about you know, what that social work appointment is going to be all about. Um, so essentially, our, our role is to meet with um, caregivers, parents, after they go through the full developmental assessment. Um, so when, after they've gone through a feedback with their psychologist or doctor. Um, this can happen, you know, it, you know, within anywhere from a, a few weeks after to, you know, it's usually three to six weeks or so after an assessment and a diagnosis has been given. 
And our role is to, you know, support parents in those early stages of receiving this diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder for their child. And, and when I say support, you know, that can cover a whole, a whole mm-hmm. bunch of different things. So, you know, just processing what this has been like for them emotionally, how it has impacted the family, um, how they're adjusting, um, as well as, you know, what, what many families are very curious about is what are my next steps? Um, so a lot of what we do is guiding parents, providing some, you know, information around what's available to them in the community, um, what supports are there for their children as well as for themselves, um, and what kind of, you know, funding is available, and just kind of help them through, you know, what their priorities are, what they want to focus on, and how they can seek that support within the community. Mm-hmm. So I see us as connectors um, and and navigators to support families in those early stages, which can be so overwhelming and confusing time for families. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. That's a really uh, comprehensive way of looking at what you do, Robin. And I'm sure um, there can be a lot of variability in how much parents know about what their social work appointment is going to be like um, when they're getting passed on pa- uh, post-diagnosis and post-assessment. Jess, in your experience, what kind of expectations do parents often come in with regarding their social work uh, sessions? And are there any like common misperceptions that families ha- might have of your role? Um, yeah, so generally, you know, when we see families after an assessment, um, they come with a range of expectations. Uh, a lot of people just sort of wanting to know what's next. Where do I go next? What do I do next? What's the first you know, uh, thing I need to think about. Where do I go to get support? Um, what type of, you know, intervention does my child need? And, and how am I going to get that? And so a lot of times there's sort of expectations that we're going to be able to provide some information on where they go for next steps and intervention. Um, also, sometimes families are looking for, um, you know, connecting with advocacy supports, maybe to help their child get into a childcare center or an early learning program or help with advocacy at school. So those are also some of the expectations that um, we see in our appointments. Um, and, and funding and financial resources. A lot of times, um, you know, we are able to support families in navigating what financial resources may be able to support their child, especially in terms of accessing intervention and other programs. Um, in terms of misconceptions, I think Um, Historically, you know, social work has had a connotation of being sort of a negative thing, um, a lot of times associated with child welfare and sort of taking children away. And so really want to, you know, highlight that our role is really just to support families as social workers. We, like Robin said, provide support in a lot of different areas. Um, And in this particular role, we're really trying to navigate those next steps for families. It is very short term, so we do typically only meet with families um, once, but we do try to provide some additional guidance and connection uh, as they need it, put, as they uh, need. Yeah. So you're really describing kind of um, parents thinking about social work in that context of like child will- welfare, mm-hmm. right? Have you ever had parents who've come in and actually thought that? you might be, you know, judging kind of the quality of care that they're providing or potentially taking their children? Um, Absolutely. I think it really depends on the family's history and sort of their personal experiences in the past. Um, 
um, you know, some families are nervous because they, you know, maybe they have had a bad experience in the past or some kind of connection with those services. And so they often may think that, you know, we're going to judge, you know, what, you know, what they've done to this point or what they haven't done or the fact that their child has this diagnosis that somehow, um, you know, they're being blamed or they're being judged for that. And I think it's really important to note that, you know, we, we you know, having a diagnosis is, is no one's fault and we don't blame any individual for that and I think that really our job is to help understand and help support the families understand the diagnosis as well and sort of how they can um, communicate these needs to their their family as well yeah yeah I really like the way you described it Robin as like social workers being connectors and navigators mm -hmm. do you notice any other like common misperceptions that parents might have coming in Mm -hmm. um, I, I definitely agree with all the points that Jessica has made. Um, you know that that sometimes there there are some of those um, fears or apprehensions and anxieties about meeting a, a social worker. Um, certainly, I, I've experienced that. I think probably even more than that is is can be just confusion around what what that role will be or, or what we can provide um seeing the the value in it um so so that would be uh, just not, not so much a misconception but just perhaps you know they haven't had an experience yet with a social worker and don't you know know exactly what kind of support we can provide mm -hmm. so that's part of our, our relationship building is to try and help families understand you know what what our role is and how we can how we can provide support and I absolutely agree is meaning you know the importance of meeting families where they're at and, and what they need at that moment in time. Mm -hmm. um, we also heard from Dr. Abby Solish and Dr. Sharon Smile in previous episodes that families often come into the assessment from different places in terms of their awareness and understanding of ASD and whether or not the idea of ASD resonates with them in respect to their child or teen. Um, I think, Jess, previously when we were talking, you put it eloquently, when you said that families often started their journeys prior to coming to Holland Bloorview. Can you tell us what you meant by that, and how does that affect your time with the families? Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of times when families come in Holland Bloorview for an assessment, um, often they've had concerns about their child a lot longer than the, you know, maybe the time they've been on the wait list for an assessment. And so early on, um, you know, they have concerns and anxieties and worries, not really understanding maybe the child's behaviors or the way they're presenting. And so sometimes the families have sought out other, you know, opinions about things. Maybe they've had other access to services along the way, things like speech and language pathology or um, speech and language services, um, daycare and child services, um, you know, connecting maybe multiple appointments with their pediatrician or their family doctor trying to express their concerns about the child's needs and maybe not having that, you know, their needs met at that time or waiting mm -hmm. extra than, waiting longer than they have to. Um, and so I think this journey is something that, you know, we recognize didn't start from the day they had this assessment, that it often started many months or even years before. And we, you know, need to understand that these families sometimes are, you know, waiting, you know, for some kind of clarity and some kind of explanation to help maybe understand how they can best support their child's needs. 
And for some families, that's something they've sought out. And for some families, that may be not something that's been on their radar or something they're aware of. And they've really had to um, maybe get some support along the way by those other providers to provide some sort of, you know, guidance around, you know, maybe this is something you should consider looking into for the child. Um, so definitely it's been a journey by the time they get through the assessment and then they go through the assessment process and then that in itself is its own little journey, you know, trying to, you know, re recall the child's history and learning um, about what's important to share with the diagnostician and um, the, for the assessment and then maybe coming through as an assessment and watching the child, you know, do a play-based um, assessment with the clinician and not really understanding what they're looking for or what the right answer is and so I think there's a lot of anxieties and nerves that go along with just that journey through the assessment and you know culminating in the feedback which can often be you know a huge sense of relief for some families can be complete shock for others um, so really uh, wanting to say that we recognize that this journey is is longer than just the assessment and and hope that we can sort of, you know, be supportive to families when we're uh, meeting with them. And I think taking that into consideration really helps with assessing where a, ch uh, a family's at, a parent's mm -hmm. at when you meet with them. Which kind of blends beautifully into mm -hmm. my next question. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> you're often the first point of contact that a family has after receiving that diagnosis. Um, and as a result, you're likely going to see a range of emotions from parents as well as varying responses from the parents in terms of acceptance of the, of the diagnosis. So how does that play out in the appointment? Um, well, you know, when I, when I meet with families, I try to sort of get a quick sense of where things are at for them looking at what their goals are for the appointment and sometimes I can sort of get a sense whether emotionally things are you know that they're on board with the diagnosis maybe they're not so looking at range of emotions you know acceptance um, denial you know not not believing the diagnosis um, you know sometimes we do see families who are having a little bit harder time with that and processing that and so I find that our job or our role can shift more in terms of just trying to respect where the family's at and provide them the best support that we can with the time that we have. And, you know, um, grief, feeling, you know, like families are feeling sad and, and uh, not sure sort of how to process this or how to think about the future, knowing that this is probably going to change the direction that, you know, maybe their goals and, and hopes for their child were going. And I think that that range can play out in various ways. Um, and, and you might even start off at the beginning of, um, of a social work session with a family who's, you know, maybe in uh, really, you know, sad and, and, and really struggling with the diagnosis. But then by the end of it, you're able to kind of maybe put together a couple of practical things that the family's able to leave with and they're able to sort of feel a little bit of sense of hope. And I think that that's really what we try to mm -hmm. um, put forward is a sense of hope um, in families and and also, uh, you know, we know families are resilient. And so knowing that this might be sort of one of those blips in the road that sort of is challenging right now, but that there's hope for the future and that with this, with, you know, with the ability to connect to resources and services, they may be able to sort of get back a bit more on track or maybe onto a different track, but have more control of that track and where it's going. Beautiful. Um, yeah. I don't know if you wanted to add anything, Robin. I think that was amazing, Jessica. I completely <laughs> agree with everything you said. <laughs> 
So one of the unique things about social work appointments is that they're essentially set up to support a child or teen who has recently received an ASD diagnosis. But unlike most other services at Holland Bloorview, um, you two in your social work role, you typically don't get to meet that child or teen. So are there pros and cons to not actually having the client there and not actually having that, that meeting and contact? Yeah, so I think that's a, a really interesting question. I think, yeah, absolutely, there are some, some pros and cons to that. Um, when we're meeting parents who have uh, a very young child who's just recently gone through an assessment, say for a, a preschool-age child, it's, it is very common that we are meeting that parent um, on, on their own, or maybe a child is, is playing in the room where we could see them in person. <laughs> Um, and, you know, I think one of the things that's, that's helpful around that is we are giving a space and opportunity for, for parents to talk about, you know, what this has been like for them. And, you know, they are busy, as Jessica was talking, um, for, for many, you know, months or, or years leading up to the assessment. The focus has been often on their child, trying to figure out uh, what their child's needs are and how to best support them. And, and sometimes there isn't a lot of focus on their own experience as, as the caregiver. So I think a, an ad, a pro or an advantage, as you asked, is that we give space for, for the caregiver to talk about what, what, what they're going through and what they need as well. Um, I think certainly as, as children get older and um, they're at a place where they're you know, able to understand their own diagnosis and families are talking to them about that, they might be a part of our appointment um, where they can also talk about what supports they feel that they need and you know, add, add their own perspectives, which is really important. Yeah, I think that's great to highlight having that space to uh, process what the parents might be feeling because mm -hmm. we talked about this in our in our pre-interview for today's episode and then it's also something that's woven into other episodes as well that the recognition that oftentimes in that feedback appointment when a parent is getting a diagnosis that might be the only thing that they're hearing. Yeah. So there's a lot of other information that gets unpacked or processed mm -hmm. at a different time period and, and might actually come into some of the appointments that you have too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's something that we hear so often from parents, exactly what you just said, Heidi, around, you know, once the diagnosis is shared during that feedback appointment with the diagnostician. Many, many parents share that they are not able to hear anything after that point. And, and even just having two weeks after to just process, parents are, can often be in a very different place um, in, in their, um, you know, in, in their ability at that point in time to, to kind of process and talk and, and hear about what resources are available and what next steps are recommended. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. and actually that ties into our next question. So Robin, you kind of highlighted that parents often need to emotionally dig digest uh, an ASD mm -hmm. diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to how that often works and how you some support them with that? I think Jess also mentioned earlier about the grief cycle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's a, a good question and something really important to to acknowledge and, and be aware of. And, and just to, you know, agree with what Jessica said earlier around the fact that, you know, every every parent, every caregiver is, is on their own path. 
their reactions are, are their own. And there's so many factors that come into, you know, how a family is, is processing this diagnosis. So, uh, yeah, I think that we, we were talking about how for some parents, there is that experience of, of shock or grief. And when we think about, you know, grief, um, it's really the idea of um, dealing with uh, changed expectations. Uh, and, and there can be grief around that. And, and when we think about the cycles of grief, as you mentioned, Heidi, um, sort of the, the key ones that you hear about are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And we don't think of these as, as linear stages that, that a person moves through during any periods of, of change or, or loss. Um, these are very um, fluid. So people move through different experiences, different feelings, different stages of grief at, at different times. Different um, life experiences can bring up different feelings as well, um, beginning school, graduation, um, and, and families are going to process that in their own way. And I, I think that I, I absolutely also agree with what Jessica said. I, I see our role as, as supporting parents towards acceptance, um, but you know that's going to happen at, at you know it's going to take a different timeline for for different different caregivers and parents. Um, and so you have to allow those feelings um, to be there um, and process them and find the supports to work through it because, you know, the, I think the greatest gift you can give to your child is, is to accept, um, to embrace and to celebrate the unique qualities that, that they have, um, that the unique qualities that their autism spectrum disorder brings. And, and I think that moving towards a place of acceptance um, is, is not only very powerful um, for, for parents to experience, um, but it's hugely powerful and for a child. Um, and, and, but I think that you can't you know, expect that to happen immediately for everyone. And, and that's where I think kind of accessing supports and giving space to feel whatever you feel, um, to normalize those, those feelings of loss, if that's what's coming up, um, I think it's very important. And it's also important to um, normalize when there aren't feelings of, of loss. And, and for many parents, that isn't their experience. And there can be a sense of relief, as Jessica talked about, a sense of feeling validated and reassured that they understood that there was something going on and, and now they understand what it is. Um, they may have another child um, on the autism spectrum and so they've come through, they've gone through some of these stages around acceptance already. Um, a parent might identify themselves as autistic and they really understand um, what their child is, is going through and experiencing um, and have you know incredible insight um, or you know neurodiverse in any way and gives them a lot of insight and they celebrate um, all of that mm -hmm. neurodiversity. So I think it's important to also remember that, that there is no one way to respond that always are in normal and that we, we, we embrace that and we meet them where they're at. Yeah, and this this parallels so much of what we say about um, children and, and youth themselves when mm -hmm. we're thinking about ASD and the diversity that um, kids' profiles present. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about the, the diversity and the variability in families. And I really love that language that you're using around normalizing mm -hmm. the spectrum of emotions, the spectrum of acceptance. 
Um, and so it really gets at the sense, you know, it's okay, whatever way you're processing this, right? And Absolutely. it could be that you feel like you're, you're, you're doing really well and you're, um, you've got a sense of agency for the, the first couple of weeks and then you might hit a roadblock and really feel bad for a few days and that's okay. Yeah, I think that's, that's so important. So well said. Absolutely. And, and I think that is, you know, it, it is often a gift that we can give, um, to, to everyone and, and to the parents that we serve to to remind everyone that that it is all okay <laughs> whatever you're experiencing there is nothing wrong with with having the reaction that that you're having um, and I think that is that is so important and to know that it is I often kind of talk about that it can feel like a roller coaster just as you, you said one day you're kind of moving along and connecting to to resources and maybe connecting to other parents and um, just finding a moment with your child incredible and hilarious and just embracing all of it and the next day something hits you that that can feel you know very challenging and 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 that's okay and bring up a lot of emotions so i think it's also reminding parents that um there you're not going backwards at all when you have a, a day that's really hard or a week or a month um, that, that is normal and that it's um, important to access the supports that work for you and we might get into that later but I think it's also don't there's the spec the idea of spectrum can come up so much as there's a, a spectrum of, of autism uh, there's a spectrum of emotions and, and reactions um, and I think there's a spectrum of, of what works for you in terms of support um, and and for some that might be you know accessing support from family members or connecting with other parents who also have a child on the spectrum and and finding what works for you I think is really important and recognizing that 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 is also not one size fits all it's a real theme here yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. definitely um, so in your experience, what are some common factors that influence families' ability to accept their child or teen's ASD diagnosis? And what happens if a family can't accept that diagnosis? Have you had that happen? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, absolutely. I think um, in terms of some of the factors that play, you know, that are at play when a family's, um, you know, going through this process and whether they're able to you know, adjust and accept this diagnosis. I think there's, you know, various factors, including things like um, culture and, um, you know, upbringing and where a family is from. In some cultures or some uh, backgrounds, uh, autism spectrum disorder might be taboo or it might not be something that's openly talked about. And so I think on some occasions, you know, this can be really difficult um, when you may be um, heavily connected to you know to a, um, a background or a culture especially when you have family members and extended family and so you know I've often met families that are struggling with you know how do I even share this diagnosis with my mom or with my dad or you know how do I tell the grandparents or how do I tell you know my husband or my spouse or partner and I think that we we really recognize that that the way that we talk about things, you know, especially in North America, may not really translate very well um, to other cultures. And you know, looking at other obstacles or you know factors, we we talk about language and um, families that maybe don't speak English. And a lot of this process, you know, we it is through you know 
in English and we use translators and interpreters for supports, but we know that some things just don't connect the same way. And so really making sure that when we're working with the family that we're um, maybe finding the language that makes sense for them. Um, you know, one of the other things that's common is maybe a disagreement between parents um, or caregivers. So maybe one person's more on board with the diagnosis than another, and so that can really make the adjustment period a bit more challenging for families. And, you know, trying to, you know, meet families where they're at can be difficult when one family member might be more, you know, in line with the diagnosis and the other may not. And so really just trying to juggle the, um, both those uh, uh, feelings and sort of understand how you can support them um, as, as a, a union and as a couple as well. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's something that can be um, often uh, a challenge. Um, but knowing that families are able to, in, in some instances, sort of talk about things more openly um, when they're with us um, and so maybe some of those disagreements around things don't necessarily come out um, at home or and vice versa so I think that those are just some of the factors um, you know when we're looking at families connecting to that diagnosis and really adjusting and sort of moving forward from there yeah I think that um, explanation to you about household dynamics really mm -hmm. resonates as well so in a previous episode we had two parents on um, and initially when there were um, first some concerns around their two-year-old's development parents weren't on the same page and dads kind of thought that uh, um, there might have been a bit of overreaction on mom's part to going through the assessment but fortunately when they went through the assessment process both of them uh, participated on it and very quickly got on the same page. But I know even just from a diagnostic point of view, there's often times when it's one parent who's kind of navigating this journey and then having to report back to the other parent in the household. And then that can be very tricky when that parent isn't really uh, accepting what they're hearing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things I know in my practice I try to do is if I if I know that maybe um, caregivers, parents or um, partners are maybe uh, separated or divorced or not, you know, residing together, I sometimes will offer to meet with those parents separately to really understand their position and their support needs and really making sure that the information is shared equally among parties so that there's not so much of a responsibility on one parent sharing the information with the other, especially if there's no open dialogue or communication happening between the parties. And so, you know, that's one way that we as social workers can sort of support families in those situations. But you're right, um, oftentimes, you know, uh, if it's a two-parent household, for example, there could potentially be one person who's tasked with sort of attending all the medical appointments and therapy sessions and consultations and the other parent might be, you know, maybe they're out in the workforce or they're working and we understand that there are limitations um, to what families have to do. Um, and so, you know, I, like I said, we always sort of make it available that either parent could contact back if they have questions and I think that that really opens it up and it maybe helps make the, the parent a little more reassured 
um, that they're, you know, if they miss something or if they don't take in everything, that maybe the social worker can help explain those things again at a later point in time to the, the partner or spouse. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a great practice. So Robin, at the top of the episode, you had really described like, what is the point? What's the purpose of the social work appointment that you're having with parents and families? And it really came across that you're trying to do and accomplish a lot in a social work appointment. So there's a lot of like connecting to services, trying to get parents on their way in terms of intervention. And that involves a lot of um, paperwork. (laughs) And so how do you balance that emotional component versus the administrative kind of support that you provide in a social work session? Yeah, that is a tricky balance, to be honest. Um, it is a very packed appointment. As as we mentioned earlier, we are um, a consultative service. So we often only have one fairly lengthy appointment with families, but it is a, a, a packed full appointment um, to do exactly what you're, what you're describing, to kind of ad- address and, and support what's going on for a family emotionally in those early early days early weeks after the the diagnosis is given um, as well as you know like like you said set families um, up along the path to to connecting to resources and supports and completing the paperwork um, which is necessary to access some of the funding that's available so I mean, my approach is to begin um, begin with the emotional part, begin with, you know, where, where, what is a family's understanding, um, of the diagnosis and how are, how, how are they coping and what are their goals and what are their priorities? So I find if we kind of begin there, um, it's a natural way to kind of move into, um, the other kind of primary goal that we have, which is making sure families know what to do next. So, so I think that's how I kind of try to strike that balance is to um, attend to and provide support to um, what a family is going through because I, I don't think we can really do all of that work if you're not kind of identifying how, how you're coping. That gives me a sense of, you know, what, what a family feels that they're able to manage at, at this moment in time. And that can really vary. Um, so, so kind of beginning there, beginning with the kind of talking about how you're how you're adjusting, um, and and kind of tailoring that to what the, the goals are, and that's how we talk about what the next steps um, can be. Yeah. So it's a it's a it is a lot, and and you know parents are often pretty tired after <laughs> yes. our appointment to be honest so yes. we encourage parents to do some self-care after take a bit of a break I, I often you know encourage families to you know take take steps with this process it does not all have to be done at once um, we really try to emphasize what you know what are the key next steps what are the priorities um, and, and those you know are you know, generally in line with what the family's key priorities are and, and just break that down into some manageable steps and, and remind parents that they, they do not have to complete all of these steps at once. We are offering a sort of a menu of options and services and, and families can ease through um, at a time that feels right for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it sounds like you can you can have an agenda for this social mm-hmm. work appointment, but ultimately your rule demands a lot of flexibility because a parent could come in and have mm-hmm. like certain goals that 
you know, might might vary from what you're thinking the session might entail. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And and really, like, I think, yeah, we have to really take care of I mean, parents are, are their 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 child's best resource. And we really have to take care of, of parents and, and caregivers um, first in order for them to do the really hard work. So, yeah, if, if there are other pressing matters um, that are going on for a family that really needs to be identified and addressed and supported first before they can kind of get into, um, you know, filling out some forms. That might not be the highest priority right now. Right now. Yeah. Okay, and Jess, you look like you're wanting to add something. Yeah, um, one of the other things that we've uh, tried to do as well to meet sort of the resource and emotional needs of families is we sort of started a um, social work resource group, which is actually, a, you know, due to the pandemic, we've been doing online. Um, it's a three session group that allows us a little more flexibility in terms of um, addressing some of those emotional needs and really giving parents a chance to meet other parents. Uh, we've heard a lot of times uh, from families and feedback that connecting with other parents has actually been sort of the most resourceful and the most useful um, part of joining one of our social work sessions. And so we are trying um, to be creative and offer new ways for families to connect with each other um, in addition to meeting their resource needs. You know, you mentioned having sort of this agenda of items and things. So absolutely there's things that we need to review with families, um, but we're also wanting to give families a chance to make suggestions and share ideas and information with each other. And I think that that can be something that's really useful and valuable. And as social workers, we're just sort of there to facilitate and encourage that discussion. And um, so far we've had, you know, really great feedback and we're hoping to be able to continue offering sessions and support like that. And that might be something that, you know, social workers talk to families individually about too, is other ways to connect with parents and connecting with support. And I'm sure those are things that um, we would do individually as well. Yeah, I think, yeah. Oh, it's just going to add one more thing yeah. to that. Um, I, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we, we recognize that we are kind of one step in this, in this journey or this path. And, and so, you know, we, we know that we can't sort of, like you said, the, the cover the agenda, we, we can't accomplish all of these, these goals in one appointment or through our group. Um, and we, we know that we know that this is a moment in time that we are supporting um, during this time. And we are one step in the, in the process. So I think it's also about, you know, like I said, being that connector, if they're, if a parent does feel that they need, you know, more support, um, and many parents do find that quite helpful to, to connect with a counselor, to have more ongoing support around um, adjustment to the, to the diagnosis and how this is impacting uh, their family, relationships with their extended family, relationships with their partner. Um, and so, so also just connecting families to access more ongoing support if they, if they feel that would be valuable. So uh, kind of understanding our, our limits and knowing that we're a, part, we're a step in the process. Um, but if families do need more support, we, we try to kind of help them connect to that. Yeah. And I think just that's a, such a huge component, what you described in the groups about having other families and, and them being able to connect to. It's something that's come up in, in previous episodes where we've heard from parents during the process, they've kept it to themselves. So either like, you know, as parents, they're not really sharing information with their friends and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, we've 
talked um, mm -hmm. with other parents too about how important it was to get information and support from families post-diagnosis as, as well. So that idea again of normalizing I mean, we can talk about it uh, on a verbal level, but it still might seem very abstract. But then when you're in a group, it's then very experiential. You're looking around and you're seeing it. It is a very normal process that they're going uh, through. Yeah, I was going to say one of the, you know, the, the most powerful things that I see when we run these groups is really parents resonating and connecting with other parents. And, you know, often... Uh, more often than not, you know, one of the most common feedback thing is, I thought I was the only person going through this. And it's mm -hmm. so nice to hear other families who are also struggling, you know, with their child's not being toilet trained or their child, um, you know, having a tantrum every time they leave the house or just some of those personal mm -hmm. um, emotional issues as well. And I think that is one of the most powerful things is having a family really understand that they're not alone. And, and I think that's part of the social work role is really to help um, families identify, you know, what their, their needs are, but also let them know that we're here to support them. And there are other families out there like you. But I kind of want to talk a little bit too about how you it's interesting. I, your role is just so complex because you talk about clients and families and when they come in and how they all come from these various journeys and everybody's journey is so different, but also the importance of bringing some of the commonalities mm -hmm. so that they get to share where their journeys tend to cross over. Mm -hmm. And so it's such a complex process for you to have to appreciate the differences in everybody's journey, but then to bring them together so that they can see, oh yeah, others are going through this. I'm not on my own. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, it's a really good analogy. That's a really good point, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so earlier we had uh, talked about um, common uh, challenges that come up if a family is having a hard time accepting a diagnosis. Are generally there any like common challenges that just come up in, in your work with parents and families more broadly? Um, yeah, I, you know, I think that, that you brought up a really good one around, um, you know, acceptance around the diagnosis certainly is a challenge that can come up. You know, I think that, um, you know, one of the challenges can also be, um, you know, figuring out what, what your child needs. And that's something that, that we hear from a lot of, a lot of parents, um, that they're looking for a, a very clear roadmap um, around, you know, what, ex what exactly, you know, the, the therapy they, that should look like, that they should access, you know, how many hours a week mm -hmm. of therapy, just a, a lot more clarity. Um, I think that is one of the challenges that parents can um, feel. Oftentimes parents tell me that they feel really confused or, or lost or, or frustrated that, um, there isn't that really kind of clear direction and roadmap. Um, and, and I think that that can be a challenge uh, around kind of, you know, supporting parents to um, figure out what their priorities are and what their goals are and, and helping families feel um, 
you know, trust in, in, in the, their own instincts around what, what to focus on. So I, I find that um, can be a, a challenge that comes up. Um, and just generally to the challenge of just how much there is to do. Um, we put a lot on, on parents, um, you know, there's, there's so much to do in those, those early stages as we've been talking about, um, in connecting to resources, filling out forms and parents are doing all of that while they're also just making sense uh, of the diagnosis, um, and, and perhaps dealing with those feelings of, of anxiety or, or sadness or, or fears and and so it's i think that's a real challenge is is um supporting parents through through all of that um all the work that they they need to do and kind of you know interestingly um supporting parents to buy into the idea that they can take care of themselves through that process um you know i think that often we see parents who want to sort of hit the ground running, so to speak, once they receive the diagnosis. Um, and, and the idea that it's okay for them to slow down, it's okay to take breaks, it's okay to ask, you know, uh, a family member or friend or babysitter to look after your child just so you can go for a walk or take a bath or do something to, to, to recharge. Um, I think that's a real challenge too, is to support parents to feel that that's, that's okay, that's, that's worthwhile, that's important, that this is, you know, there's nothing selfish about that. And I find that to be, to be a challenge too, is to um, support parents to, to um, believe that idea and give themselves that space to take care of themselves through this process. I think that's such mm -hmm. a, a novel idea for a lot of parents, right? Yeah. Uh, just thinking about parents that we see um, in the assessment side of things, and then the, the, they're obviously going on to the uh, social work appointments, but just when you were talking about um, the fact that parents and families have often been on a journey before the assessment, right? And a big part of that is waiting. Right, mm -hmm. waiting on the wait list, yes. waiting for the assessment, coming to you, and then they're probably getting told that they also have to wait for services as well, mm -hmm. which can often be really hard, right? Mm -hmm. And we also know that all families, you know, aren't operating on the same playing field as well, so there might be obstacles within uh, various families that they have to deal with too, yes. right? <laughs> so the the waiting. Um, can often make parents feel like, no, I have to push ahead. I have to keep yeah. going. Yes. And you're saying though, it's okay to also stop and take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Crucial. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, but you bring up an excellent point and that the, the waiting time and Jessica might want to speak more to that, but that is of course a, a big challenge. And I'm glad you, you brought that up. Mm -hmm. That's certainly a very challenging and frustrating yeah. process for parents to yeah. wait so long to get to this point and then have to wait again yeah. for yeah. service. So I think um, I, I hear this phrase a lot or I use this phrase a lot that's called, you know, there's a lot of hurry up and wait. Mm -hmm. And so you're kind of hurrying, hurrying, hurrying to get through the assessment, hurrying to get your child on the wait list, and then you end up waiting. And so, you know, that waiting period can be um, excruciating, you know, uh, for people. And like you mentioned, Heidi, I think knowing that not everyone's on the same playing field, you know, families are coming from different socioeconomic status, families are coming from different cultural backgrounds, language barriers, you know, access to services can be different and look different for many 
you know, for all the families that we work with. And I think, you know, just to t tag on a little bit to what Robin was saying, one of the other challenges that I think, um, you know, we, we share, you know, uh, in the frustration is sort of this ongoing change in terms of the system and sort of the system changes and policy changes and ongoing um, fluctuation with programming and intervention and and we know that the you know it's often quite frustrating um, trying to share these changes with families and and also just know that like the multitude of information um, that we're trying to share is, is quite a lot mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. I think you know, one of the challenges for us as social workers is sort of staying abreast of all the changes and making sure that we can accurately give what's most up-to-date and, and, and uh, true information to families. And I think, you know, that's definitely um, impacted the way that we do our jobs and how much uh, work goes on behind the scenes in terms of making sure we understand what's happening. Has there been any changes? with new programs or new services that might be applicable to your family. And we want to make sure that we share what is most applicable and, and, and sort of maybe make some of those uh, help you cut out or weed out some of those decisions that come next. And I think that that's a huge thing that um, often goes sort of under the radar and, and, and unnoticed. And I think that that's one thing that I would say social workers are really good at doing is, is sort of, being knowledgeable of, of what's out there and, and at the same time we want to educate families to be knowledgeable about their child and their child's needs and and so although there's a lot of waiting uh, involved after an assessment there's a lot of things that you can do um, there's a lot of things that parents can be doing you know to educate themselves on autism spectrum disorders learning uh, about you know various things that they might be wanting to know about taking a parent workshop you know there's lots of opportunities that are available um, often for free to families and I think that that's one of the things we really want to highlight that those are things you can do while you're waiting and um, you know hopefully that is something that you know you feel is something you can access yeah those are excellent points, Jess. I mean, uh, it's something that we've even been cognizant of in thinking about um, recording these podcast episodes in terms of not being too specific and naming certain types of funding or naming certain agencies because if somebody were to listen to an episode two years later, those labels might not be relevant anymore. So we want to, we want to keep it uh, as general and as um, relevant as possible. Um, I think also, too, you highlight, like, you're wearing a lot of different hats in your role as a social worker. So sharing resources, education, keeping current. There's a lot happening uh, behind the scenes and between those sessions with clients, aren't there? Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I think that, that part of um, social work as a practice is also about advocacy. And, and that, you know, a lot of that might, might happen behind the scenes around, you know, if a family does need some support advocating um, around connecting to supports at school or, or connecting to community resources or whatever it might be. So a lot of that is a lot of what we do behind the scenes, um, as well as, as communicating with, with communi community agencies, um, helping them understand what a family's lived experience is of, of accessing supports there and I see that as as part of our, our role as well um, is understanding the systems and also when we see that systems are, are creating barriers or, or not 
you know, supporting uh, the, the families. Um, you know, I see that as also our role to to bring that up um, and and advocate on behalf of the, the, the children and families that we support. Yeah, you guys are amazing advocates, by the way. Um, and you're also talking about coaching parents to be advocates for their children, too. So um, what kind of things, what kind of issues come up in, uh, in terms of being advocates for their kids? You know, as I was saying earlier, I think, you know, parents are, are their, their best resource for their children. And, and so they, advocacy is, is definitely a part of this, of this role and this experience. Um, I think one of the things that comes up uh, fairly often is parents um, might not realize that we, we do have um, policies in place to ensure that every child has a right to in attend um, childcare programs, um, as well as you know public schools, and that there are actually supports um, within these these settings. So, you know, one one of the things that I think is really important in talking to parents is to make sure that their child does have a, a human right to attend these programs and to get the supports that they need in those environments. Um, Often, I often get asked, will, will my child be able to go to school? And I really work hard in these early stages to ensure that parents know with, without a doubt they have a, they have a right to attend school. Um, and we talk about, you know, what are some of the potential advantages to sharing the diagnosis with the school or with the daycare um, in terms of helping the staff in those environments understand their child and understand you know what kinds of, of supports they need or what they need to help their day run smoothly do they need visual schedules to to help um, do they need a bit of coaching um, to support that social interaction and, and so we, we talk to parents about what what are some of the advantages in sharing that information um, and, and really reassure parents that um, I think around advocacy that they have also a right to access interpretation when they're speaking with the school. I think that that's, that's really important for, for families to know. They can have a meeting with the teacher that they're not, you know, being, being pushy. They are, they are doing what their child needs. And, and, you know, if their child is just beginning kindergarten and they're, you know, not able to kind of do that self-advocacy, which of course we want to support individuals on the spectrum to also self-advocate. Um, but, it, you know, when, when children are so young, they are reliant on their parents to, to be that voice and to support them to get what they need. And many of the staff in these environments, daycares and schools, really want to create that environment um, for a child to be successful. That's why they're in these these professions. And I, and I think kind of... Um, supporting parents around how to talk to to these professionals I often talk about you know writing a letter as a you know to introduce their child before they start you know this is this is who my child is this is what my child loves this is this is my child's strength and these are some areas that are hard sometimes and you know a parent can share what they've tried what's been helpful for them um, in the areas that are more difficult and I, and, and I think daycare providers and school teachers and therapists or piano teachers or gymnastics instructor whatever it might be often find that kind of information really helpful so I see you know advocacy it's coaching parents how to advocate and also see it kind of really as you know coaching parents around how to collaborate because everyone's in this to support your child and and you know ideally you're kind of working with with individuals who who ha are on the same page and yeah and, uh, mm -hmm. 
Um, you've both been providing social work services at Holland Bloorview for a long time. Um, and there have been lots of changes throughout, which you've alluded to um, earlier. So what have you learned or experienced that's changed the way you approach your work? I think over the years as well, sort of just learning and knowing that, you know, we're not the only step along this road and this process for families and really um, relying and, and on our sort of interprofessional team's experience and you know, knowing that there are other professionals that potentially are going to be involved with these families and really just supporting, you know, my role within that larger interprofessional team and beyond. So once they leave Holland Blurview and, and sort of being able to just identify, you know, what we can give them, what skills and what things, resources we can give them that might help them be successful um, beyond these, these walls as well. And I think that that's something that's really been the most noticeable for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, and um, for parents and families who are listening and may have a child or teen that's recently been assessed and or diagnosed with ASD, do you have any tips or, or suggestions sorry, as to how they can be prepared for a social work appointment? Yeah, so I think that um, one thing that can be really helpful is if you are preparing for a social work appointment to kind of think about what some questions you might have um, so you can even you know take you know write write some of those questions down before you're meeting with a social worker perhaps those those questions might be in the area of you know like are, are there particular kinds of programs that you're looking for um, do you have questions about about daycare about school um, so just thinking about kind of what you're what your priorities are and what your goals are. Um, those might be some, some good things to do to prepare for your social work appointment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was also going to add, it, you know, because um, the appointments can sometimes be quite long, mm -hmm. um, we find it helpful if, you know, families, if they're able, of course, um, to make arrangements ahead of time to see you know, for childcare or other care needs of their family members so that they're able to really focus on the conversation and that their attention is sort of not divided between tasks. That's often um, really helpful um, in, in helping families sort of stay on, on track and really uh, retain as much information as possible from those sessions because as we highlighted before, they can be really information heavy and so really, you know, providing yourself the space to be able to um, be present and available, I think, is one of the, the biggest gifts you can give yourself for that appointment. Yeah, that's a great, great yeah. point. Yes, and and that I mean, sometimes we do talk about just ways of, of kind of organizing yourself, um, not just for the social work appointment, but for for all appointments. And some parents do find it helpful to um, create a large binder or get one of those accordion files, or if you're more techie, do it all on you know electronically um but to kind of just like categorize all the different you know all the different components you know all the the different funding and and speech therapy or behavioral therapy and having like um one one place where you can store all of this different information it's interesting you say that because the family that we had on previously i remember um, the mum was talking about her big binder that she had that she and she now needed to organize all of these different sections yeah. but that was one of the things that mm -hmm. she was given that tip from 
a colleague, I think, that had a child with ASD, and she said it was probably the best advice she'd ever been given, is to just organise this huge influx of information. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a ton of paperwork when yeah. it comes to assessments and consultations yeah. Yeah. and diagnoses, and so um, being being as organised as possible um, will definitely help in the long run when you're, you know, advocating in the school system or advocating in other systems outside of home Bloorview. And so that's one thing that we try to encourage families to do. Um, previously, when we'd been talking, um, you had mentioned or had talked about the importance of um, a support network, building a support network. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I know families find helpful is sort of having a support network available to them, whether that be for the social work appointment or for the assessment itself. Sometimes families will actually bring a support provider with them to the assessment. So that might be something like, um, you know, an early childhood educator or a special needs resource support person from the daycare. Could be somebody who already knows the child's needs, maybe even a grandparent or another caregiver, um, just to help support the conversation, the history, um, and then when it comes to the social work appointment, it really just is a second, you know, mm-hmm. pair of ears to help really take in the information and help support the follow-up after that appointment. And mm-hmm. so for some families, they have, uh, you know, they may have those higher support needs and require additional um, support person to attend with them as well. That might just be part of your, you know, self-care and setting up that support network for yourself so that it doesn't all fall on you and that if you feel overwhelmed or if you're feeling like you're missing something that hopefully that it's almost like a safety net that second person is there to catch the information for you and I think that that can be it can be immensely helpful in sort of helping with that next steps Mm -hmm. and follow up and you know if you missed any information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, I love that. I think that's so important um, to have that support and that extra, extra, you know, set of ears to kind of help you kind of take in all of this information. And I think I also, if anyone is, is preparing for their social work appointment to say, you know, feel free to ask us, ask us anything, tell us to, to slow down if you need information reiterated. You know, we are, we really um, are here to be a support. And I think that would be another thing I would just add to that in preparing for your appointment that um, this is, this is really your opportunity as a, as a caregiver to kind of ask what's needed. Um, If it's too much, you know, you can let us know if we need to slow down, if we need to repeat things. Like, I think it's really important um, to take that opportunity and there are no you know, there's no wrong questions to ask in that in that setting. So it's really a, a good place to to seek that. And mm-hmm. those are such great tips, guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that actually brings us to the end of the interview questions for today. Thank you so much, Jess and Robin, for joining us and having a thorough conversation about social work services post ASD diagnosis. We hope that listeners have a better sense of what you do and the support that you provide. And I guess also I just want to add, we can't express how much respect and admiration that we have for what you do. You truly are the connectors and navigators for both clients and families, as well as the broader system. And we are so lucky to have you. Thanks thank so you. Thank you. Thanks, so ladies. Yes, thank, thank you, you so much. much. If you've listened to this episode and have comments or ideas that you'd like to share with us regarding future episodes or what you heard today, 
feel free to email us at asdengage at hollandbloorview.ca. 